if you have a Bible, you could turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. I'm not sure if I said, my name is Lance. So, hi. I should have said that. If I haven't met you, I'd love to get a chance to do that. We're going to read in Matthew 28 in just a, in just a minute. Uh, let, me, let me tell you what we're about today. We are looking at baptism and the Lord's Supper. So just, just unraveling 2,000 years of practice and understanding and theological foundation for baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's all we're going to attempt to do today. The reason that we're doing this, if you're just joining us or you haven't been around for the summer, is we have been very careful in the last 11 weeks, this is week 12, to walk through a confessional statement. It's just a statement of faith. It's a statement of faith that we are proposing that the church adopt. It's from the Gospel Coalition. So there'll be a vote on that. Uh, We've done uh, pastor's classes in the late spring and summer. We've done congregational meetings. We want to make sure that everyone is comfortable with the language and get some time to go to go through it. And we have now come to the 12th week out of 13. Uh, we are looking at baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, I confess to you right up front, we will not solve all of the problems and questions and nuances in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Let me just say that right up front. I want to lower your expectations as much as possible for the next 30 or so minutes. We simply cannot do it. I'm tempted in some ways to, to get my political game on. I've watched some of the debates And I want to answer this question much like someone might answer a question of, uh, what do you think about the United States economy? I'm for it. (laughs) I I want what do you you think about baptism, the Lord's Supper? I'm for them. That's what I am. I'm for those things. I'm positive on them. That's what I want. I'm tempted to answer it just basically like that because I confess to you that we won't answer all of the nuances. And I want to say that right from the beginning, many of you are unbelievably thoughtful in these areas. You come from traditions or uh, histories in churches where you have, you have specific ideas of this is the way that this would be best. Sometimes it even borders more than best and best practice and more like this is a moral situation that we're in right now. And I want to encourage you, ask someone if those questions come up. I don't want this to be an exercise in, in frustration for you. Come and ask the pastors. There was a pastor's class on baptism that we did earlier in the spring. It's online. Uh, You could go and ask and find that. What I want to do is commend to you the basic foundational idea that these religious rites, these practices, these things that we do, that quite honestly mark us off as churchy kind of people, are significant, they're meaningful, that they're for you, that God gave them to us to celebrate things in a unique and a specific way and that he even meets us in these things. I want you to feel at the end of today, if you have not got all of your questions answered, that you at least say, I'm so grateful we have baptism in the Lord's Supper. I'm grateful for what they signify. I desire to be obedient. And as a church, I want us together to walk in these things. That is the goal. That's the hope. And so I want to read the confessional statement. It should be on the back of your worship guide when you came in. I think it'll be on the screen. Uh, might, might, we might have got it there. You could follow along. I think you're going to find uh, that it's one of the shorter statements. I think that's because the diversity of people involved in the Gospel Coalition, the number of churches uh, involved, it's better to keep things short and simple. Uh, when I say better, I mean some people wouldn't have signed off on it. 
the more you get specific, the more you immediately run into things where people say, that's not how I understand the Bible. That's not how Grandmama did it, right? That, that kind of thing comes out quickly. And so I think that there is a, there's a preciseness and a simplicity to this statement that I want us to wrestle with today. I'm going to read it. Uh, you could just follow along as I read. And we'll take a moment and we'll pray. We believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordained, are ordained that's hard to say, are, 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 are ordained by the Lord Jesus himself. The former, meaning baptism, so this first one, the baptism, is connected with entrance into the new covenant community. The latter, meaning the Lord's Supper, with ongoing covenant renewal. So one, is, one marks entrance, the other marks an ongoing relationship. Together, they are simultaneously God's pledge to us, divinely ordained, ordained means of grace, our public vows of submission to the once crucified and now resurrected Christ, and anticipations of his return and of the consummation of all things. There's a lot of theological words in there, a lot of meaning wrapped up into these few sentences, and I want to ask that God, God helps us in the next few moments. You pray with me. Father, we're inadequate. Uh, we, we don't know. We don't know perfectly in every age and in every moment exactly what practice is best all the time. We see what you've given us in Scripture. I pray that instead of being right, you would move in us the desire to be obedient that as a church body we would embrace these things together, that we would long for, we would tell people about Jesus so that we could see baptisms celebrated, that we would come together frequently, we would not neglect gathering together so that we could partake in communion to be unified around Christ's body, his blood given for us. I pray that you would help us, give us eyes to see Soften our hearts. I know that there can be much confusion in these areas. And God, I pray that you would do what only you can do. Help us to think about baptism, about the Lord's Supper, and to to bring more unity through that conversation. Holy Spirit, come. Bring comfort, bring conviction. Help us to see you clearly. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think if I asked every single person in this room, let's play a little name recognition game, and I'm just going to say these words, and then you tell me what comes to mind or what your experience has been, you would be shocked at the number of places that are legitimately Christian, people who love Jesus. They are honk if you love Jesus kind of people. And yet, when you asked them, what is baptism, what is the Lord's Supper, there would be an amazing diversity of experiences. I wish that we could serve a nice foamy latte with a picture drawn on top to every person and we could just take time and say, give me your experience. Where are you at? Where are the sticking points? What are you hoping that the pastor says? What are you hoping he says he's against? And that all of our experiences could come together and we could hear because you would understand the kind of diversity that's even in a room like this. When I think about these these phrases, baptism and the Lord's Supper, I can very easily attach 30 plus years of church attendance and church understanding and experience. I'm going to get to Lord's Supper in a minute. I might just start there with the illustration. When I think of communion, when I think of the Lord's Supper from growing up, 
little kid, blonde hair, go to church. Here's what I think. You better feel bad about this. This, do you know Jesus died? This is his blood that he shed. And not only should you feel bad about it, but if you take this in the wrong way, you could die or worse, right? I mean, that was, that was the thinking. I don't know if anybody else had this experience, but communion was done in a kind of a way where it was so sober. I didn't know exactly what was going on, but I picked up from when I was a child, when those gold trays come out, I know that everyone around me is going to ramp up the remorse level in whatever they got going on and completely feel bad about themselves. It seemed like the pastor's goal was to just tell everyone, if you don't feel bad enough, you're not worthy for this particular moment. And that marks the way that I think about what's supposed to happen. This is all part of my experience. We'll talk about whether or not that's a good practice or not. Should you... Should you get sad? I remember thinking as a kid, looking around at people and trying to take cues from how my face should be when I took communion and being like, that lady was smiling. (laughs) Like, God bless her. She's going to need it. She smiled and she took the cup, right? Like that was a bad deal. Baptism for me. I grew up in a Baptist church. So I apparently, I saw baptisms. I understood what that was. I was a sincere kid. I wanted to be, I wanted to follow God and be obedient. And yet, it wasn't until I was 18 years old, in the spring of 1998, Michael Jordan had only won five titles. He was about to destroy Utah. Again. They were terrible, right? And I was baptized, not because of the Holy Spirit getting a hold of me. I was not like the eunuch we're going to read about, read about in a few moments. I was not like him who said, where's some water? Like, Jesus, I want the cleansing assurance of Jesus' forgiveness. Yes, bring me before the church. That, that was not the way that I was baptized. It was a technicality, a glitch. Here's what happened. I had gone to a summer camp the year before. And at this summer camp for North Dakota, Minnesota, South Dakota, they had, these, they had the, this banquet. It was a banquet on the last night. And people would write in nominations, and there was this little, like, an, there was camp officers. So I'd gone to this camp, I went to this camp, and I was, after this summer, I was going to be vice president of camp. And so I was all excited, it was kind of cool. I got to drive to a board meeting that was a planning meeting for the camp, and as an aside, one of the leaders of the whole thing said, now I just want to make sure before you guys sign on as officers and everything happens, everybody's been baptized, right, of course, or whatever. And I was like, no, no, I haven't. So I call my church and I tell them like, hey, could you baptize me? I have this thing and I, and I need to, and I remember feeling kind of guilty about that. I remember thinking like, I'm pretty sure this is what Jesus, not what Jesus meant when he said to like repent and be baptized or go into the world and baptize just so you can serve at camp. Yeah, that's a good, good thing. I also have a unique circumstance in the sense that I stood in front of everyone and I told them that I was the first and perhaps only infant to be baptized in the history of that Baptist church. Because my mom, who had come to Jesus in the late 70s through Bible studies in this small little hometown, had been baptized in the same little baptismal thing that I was standing in at that particular moment, and she was pregnant with me. And so I was baptized in utero as a baby. What a lack of integrity on that church's part, right? Those leaders, leaders should be shamed. So I was baptized then, and then 18 years later, I stood there and told that story awkwardly and was baptized again. But all these, all these stories are weaving through everyone's heart and everyone's mind 
And then we have to say, as a church, what's God leading us to and how do we be unified in practice over these things? So I guess right from the start, I would ask you to be, to be open to the word of God and to say to yourself, what is the heart behind these, what some people would call sacraments or these ordinances, these things that Jesus has given? I want us to embrace them for our good, even if we have continuing and ongoing questions about practice. I'm going to tell you basically how Four Oaks functions in these areas, and that's where we're headed. So why was I in Matthew chapter 28? Why did you turn there? Why do you have an open Bible? Well, because in addition to John the Baptist coming out of nowhere at the beginning of the Gospels, in addition to Jesus himself submitting to baptism, we find that this act of going and having people confess and give their life to Jesus, and then as a mark a show of their entrance into life with him, into relationship with him to be baptized, is commanded by him. It's commanded by Jesus himself. This is starting in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 28. I'm being very careful. I'm going to all the classics. You know this verse. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Someone stood up and said, I am the almighty potentate. Everything that I say will happen and must happen, then you should listen. And he uses that power to give a couple of commands. He says this in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Part of discipling says make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this is what we're supposed to be doing. So somewhere in Christian practice, there should be a consistent, concerted effort to baptize people. The question becomes immediately, well then who and where and how? And these are the kinds of questions that people have talked about forever. You might notice that in the confessional statement, none of the mode of baptism that means how wet does it have is wet enough, right? That's really the question. The mode, the timing, how old is old enough? Breathing, heart beating, 18, 16, I mean how old timing is a question. And so I want to just give you right up front basically what the practice of Four Oaks is would be summarized fairly simply, I think, from a particular systematic theology text. This is Wayne Grudem writing on that particular issue. He says this, The practice of baptism in the New Testament was carried out in one way. The person being baptized was immersed or put completely under the water and then brought back up again. Baptism by immersion is therefore the mode of baptism or the way in which baptism is carried out in the New Testament. So, Grudem reads the Bible along with a whole bunch of other people. He takes all of these instances where people are baptized, he calls them together, and he says, it seems like when someone was baptized that they were dunked in water and then brought back up again, that that's the best practice. So the mode that we practice is what people would call immersion. Now, immediately, when I describe to you the practice of Four Oaks is immersion, what I want you to avoid, at least the tendency is, For a long, long time, I think that sermons and instruction and teaching on these particular issues have been marked by describing all the people you aren't. Right? Does that make sense? So I say to you, here's how Four Oaks practices baptism. 
And immediately you're thinking like, oh, so you won't, huh? You won't, you don't. Who do you not agree with? Who's wrong, right? All that stuff, you can ask those questions. We just don't have time for it in the sermon. And I don't want you to feel that. I think that's a detriment to a watching world when they ask you. Because sooner or later, all you will know about baptism is what you don't do. And the world needs to know, why does baptism symbolize my life in Christ? And what you can tell, they don't care what you think about infants or what you think about covenant. They don't think about any of that. They want to see the symbolism and beauty of what you do partake in. And so I want to just say, as definitive as I can, the leadership of the church, the history of Four Oaks, we have practiced baptism by immersion. That means that we bring a tank kind of thing that we made up here, and someone goes in and they confess faith in Jesus Christ, and then for a little while, they just completely disappear. They're just gone. You cannot see them. We put them totally under the water. Their old life has been gone. It's a beautiful, wonderful picture. They go completely underwater. 35, 40 seconds later, we pull them up. <laughs> To newness of life. That's the picture, right? That's the picture. It's, it's death. Old life is gone. New life has come. That's the beauty of this picture. So I could sit and have a conversation and say, what about this mode? What about that mode? I, I am not out to be dogmatic and say somehow God is displeased by your lack of water or something like that. That's not the point. I would just say that I think that the picture of immersion, especially when you consider Romans chapter 6, here's one of the verses, Romans chapter 6, 4, he says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. This burial, this kind of like lostness into the life of Christ, I love that picture. It's one of the things that I could really commend and say, yes, I like that a church would baptize in that way because the picture is beautiful and I think it's clear to people. I think it's clear to people what we mean by being in Jesus Christ. The next question, who should be baptized? Again, this is from Grudem, the same kind of statement. This is what he says. He says, the pattern revealed at several places in the New Testament is that only those who give a believable profession of faith should be baptized. So that means that not only by immersion, but in general, we practice believers' baptism. It means that for the most part, What we're confident about, what we think is that the Bible teaches basically this order of things. The gospel's presented. For whatever reason, God opens someone's eyes and heart and they receive forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That as a part of that gospel message, the next thing is you should signify this life you have in Jesus by being baptized. So you get instances where Peter stands up at Pentecost, he preaches the gospel to thousands of people and right in the presentation itself, he calls them to be baptized. In fact, I think if you look through the book of Acts, one of the most missional, one of the most outward-looking, gospel-preaching kind of books we have, you see baptism tied to the gospel presentation almost without fail. And so, we practice a believer's kind of baptism where we would say, those whom God moves in their soul and in their heart to confess faith in Jesus Christ, to repent of their sins, then quickly, baptism would be follow, would follow that to signify entrance into life with Jesus. I'm going to show you just one instance. I want you to, to know, of course, that this is a cursory kind of glance. We're, we cannot, the danger of a sermon like this is that it would become the most pedantic academic exercise of all time. 
Like we signed up for a seminary class. Let me show you by concordance list every time this word is used in this way. And we can't do that. But I want to show you one in Acts chapter 8. You could turn there. Acts chapter 8. And I want to just make a few assumptions about what's happening here. So in Acts chapter 8, we have the remarkable story of Philip encountering the Ethiopian eunuch. This eunuch is probably not born a Jewish person, but he is a God-fearing person who has made a trek. He's made a trek to go and to partake in religious activity. He's aware, apparently, of Jewish customs. He's been reading the scriptures. Philip sees him, runs to him, and explains what he's reading. He says, do you understand what you're reading? God opens his eyes when he hears the good news about Jesus. And this is what happens starting in verse 36. Starting in verse 36 of Acts chapter 8, we see this. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. When they came up out of the water, and I want to stop there because then it says the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. Eunuch saw him no more. That part's crazy. Don't, don't look at that. Don't focus on that. I don't know about that. We can talk about that later. But what I want you to ask the questions is basically this. I want you to ask the question basically this. What is it about Philip's gospel presentation that makes the eunuch say, hey, shouldn't I be baptized? It's not Philip. This is not the manufactured manipulation of a pastoral team with just the right music and the right temperature water. They're not manipulating anything. There's something about entrance into life with Jesus Christ. Something about the presentation. Philip could have very well explained it. Not everything that he says gets recorded in Scripture. He could have very well explained it. But apparently it was so part and parcel to things that they're going along. The eunuch says, yes, I believe in this Jesus. I have new life in him. And his instinct is, I want to obey and be baptized. Where is some water and can I get down there? Can I please go be baptized? The emphasis of the New Testament in nearly every one of these instances is simply to obey. There's a desire to be identified with Jesus. You see what he's done. You see the beauty, the symbolism of baptism, and you say, yes, I want to do that as well. That's the basic idea that we get from Scripture in so many cases. The fact that Philip is the one that brought it up indicates to me that it was not something that was sort of just an aside, just like if you happen to get there. Baptism is not for those who graduate into the 10th year of their theological training. It's just not the way that the Bible functioned. You do not need to be baptized to be saved. I'm not saying to you your sins are not forgiven. But if, after all of the testimony of Scripture, after Jesus himself is baptized and then says, go baptized, and then acts over and over, people have this desire. If you are a Christian and you have not been baptized, that at a certain point, you would probably ask the question is, why do I keep asking questions and hesitating over this? We're asking the wrong question most of the time. Christians love to talk about baptism in the sense of, how much water, and where and when, and who. At the end of the day, I think we need to be saying more and more and more, we want to obey and let's get more people baptized. I just, I want more people to be baptized. And what that means is they need to meet Jesus Christ. 
If we as a church want to celebrate this thing that Jesus gave us, this wonderful picture, this entrance right into life with him, we can't manufacture it. We can't manipulate it. I don't want to create a conveyor belt down the aisle. I don't want to trick people into baptism. We absolutely need to believe in the power of the gospel to have friends with people who who may be sort of just curious and kind of like, I don't really know. And they'll be brought to the point where they say, you know what, I do see it. I see my sin. I see what Jesus has done for me and I want to publicly identify with him. That is what baptism should be. If you gave a command to someone or you said to them, hey, I gave you this beautiful gift and they came back and all they asked was qualifying and caveat questions to avoid obeying or using the gift, I think that it would be borderline offensive and I think sometimes we get there with baptism. Let me mention a few things to you. I know that some of you have children, and this is a legitimate question. Okay, what do I do with my kids? Because at your church, my kids are growing up, and at a certain age, they they need to be baptized, right? What do I do? And I want to say to you that we would love to talk with you about these things. We don't have a hard and fast rule. We don't say it has to be 11 years old, it has to be 9 years old, I think on a case-by-case basis. A majority of the time, People who would withhold, I think sometimes put policies in place because it's easier than doing the difficult thing, which is actually discerning someone's life and their heart. We want to pastor, we want to we be in your life, we want to help shepherd you along the process. So I would say to you, from the moment that you believe that your children are seeing Jesus for who he is, the moment that they see that their sin is serious and that he died for them, then you ought to be talking to the people around you. Ask your elders, ask the pastors and say, what do you think it looks like for us to move my child who expresses wonderful, beautiful faith in Christ? What is it going to look like to move them toward baptism? That should be the question that we're asking. I know there's a million other nuances. and You might be saying to yourself like, okay, this wasn't answered. This wasn't answered. What about this? And why this? And how will this function? My suggestion to you would be just to ask There's a very in-depth pastor's class on baptism and church membership, which a lot of people connect together. And if you had questions about it, you could go and look it up. At the end of the day, I would just say to you, if you have not been baptized and you're in Jesus Christ, then I'd ask you to consider it. Pray about it and see if this isn't something you'd walk in obedience in. And if you have been baptized, thank God that he gave you a moment to look back on and to remember and to say, this is, this is what it looked like for me to enter into life with Christ. I pictured it in front of a, a group of people who could love that experience and that moment with me. And by all means, would you pray with me that we see thousands of people get baptized in the next years and years? That's, that's the goal. Like, this is a hard one. Jesus says, go into the world and, and baptize people. And so I'm a church and I want to do what Jesus wants us to do. And yet it's very easy to get cynical to be doubtful and just be like, well, this isn't going to really happen. I mean, for this to happen, that would mean people need to confess Jesus. They need to, like, repent. They need to become Christians. I don't want to ever get to that point. I want to believe God that we will celebrate baptisms as a gift from him with people who have met Jesus and love him and know him. And if I ask anything of you, I mean, sign up for the yellow card too. But if I ask anything beyond that, pray that people meet Jesus and want to be baptized. So we move on to the Lord's Supper. We're going to go to the Lord's Supper. I showed you from Matthew chapter 28 where Jesus indicated it. 
Go to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 is just one instance. Again, you could find this recorded in a number of the Gospels, any number of them. This is one of the instances, and I, I picked it out just to kind of show where it comes from. Again, one of the reasons we take these seriously is because Jesus gave them to us. Starting in verse 14 of Luke 22, it says this. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, The cup is poured out for you. Is the new, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I'm going to stop there. It goes on to betrayal. It's another one of those issues that is worth discussion, but gets us off track. Jesus instituted this thing that we call the Lord's Supper. If I had to give you a picture of the way these things work, baptism is done once and signifies entrance into life with Christ. The Lord's Supper is repeated over and over again and signifies an ongoing relationship with both Jesus and his church. That's the way that it goes. Baptism once signifies entrance into life with Christ. Communion basically signifies an ongoing relationship. Some people have used a bunch of different illustrations for this. Baptism sort of like the wedding. Lord's Supper like a good date night or something like that. As you could say, it's probably more serious than that. Unless, unless your dates are awesome. I don't want to downplay your dates. <laughs> they could reach wedding type levels. I'm not saying that. Maybe more like a renewal of vows sort of ceremony. A remembering back to what Jesus means to you and why you need him. There's a repetition in it that is good for us because we are a forgetful kind of people. You do not look at your wife and say to her, Honey, I don't know why you want to keep spending time together. Don't you remember we had that day where you got the dress on and the people came? It was a big whoop-de-doo, right? It was enough. You don't say that. There's an ongoing relationship. The point of being ushered into the marriage is to continue to commune. The point of being ushered into the marriage is to continue to commune with that person. And the Lord's Supper is an invitation to that communing. The way it was instituted is in this meal of Passover. You don't have to be a Jewish scholar, but you probably remember the story. Anybody who's seen old school cartoons or anything, what's the guy's name? Is it Heston? Is that the one? Yeah. So there's the, there's the show. You've seen it. Israel is in Egypt. They're in slavery. And in order to be removed from that place of bondage, God did a remarkable, a remarkable rescuing thing. He sent judgment on the nation all the way up to the point where the firstborns were taken and killed. And if you were not covered in the blood of a lamb, you were not spared. To commemorate that meal, families would get together every single year and remember what God had done. Jesus, just hours before he's crucified, steps into that meal with his disciples 
And he begins to reinterpret everything about the Passover meal. It is not just bondage in Egypt, but it is bondage and slavery to sin, Scripture says. It is not just a spotless, blemish-free lamb, but a spotless, blemish-free... I can't say hard when I say it to you. Blemish-free life of Jesus. See that? Egypt are the fall. Lamb, the lamb of God. The shed blood of said lamb... And Jesus begins to reinterpret and say, this is the blood that I will shed on the cross for you. He takes everything about this Passover meal and says, this is all pointing to me. And then he does something interesting. He says, as often as you do this, as often as you drink this, we find that in a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. I'm just going to begin reading in verse 20. In verse 23, Paul is instructing the Corinthian church. He says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this. As often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So out of this intimate, special, wonderful moment with Jesus and the Passover and his disciples, we find the early church has a practice of gathering together and breaking bread and drinking of the cup and remembering what Jesus has done. The thing that ties both of these together, the thing that enters us into life with Jesus, is repentance, a heart of repentance, a heart that says, I can't do it on my own, I need what Jesus has done. It's the same heart at the heart of communion. When you walk down an aisle, or you come and you take bread and you take cup, what you are saying is, my righteousness is not enough, I'm needy. I needed the death, the body the life, the death, the resurrection of another. Heart of repentance, that is what connects these two things together. And so I want to go back to 1986. Are you there with me? We're back in 1986. Told you the story at the start. How should I feel about what communion is? I just read that in Corinthians, Paul has to scold, has to scold Corinth for doing this wrong. What I would want to say to you is I think, I think that there is a seriousness about sin that is real and needs to be reckoned with. There's a sober-mindedness about it. We are sinners and it is terrible. That is true. It is totally true. But I think we need to be careful about ever presenting the Lord's Supper or the communion table as though in that moment God were begrudging his mercy until we might just get the right heart and the right mindset. And how dare you come down here and take the body of Jesus and his blood without really feeling bad about your sin. Do you know that Jesus had to die because you don't feel bad enough about your sin? That's one of your sins. You can't fix that right here in this moment. Every single one of us, in some measure, if the test is you have to be perfectly worthy, well, then we can just never come. And I don't want to ever celebrate communion in that way, 
One of the things that mitigated against it in the early church is that I really think from history and from, from record, even in scripture, there's times when it describes when you come together for the feast of love. That's literally what it's called. What a great name for something, right? The church would gather, they'd share a song or a teaching, they'd be the body of Christ together, and then really anyone who was not a member of that church would leave, and everyone else would stay and have a massive feast. That's what would happen. It seems like every single week they would gather and just feast on everything, just on couscous and like hummus and probably not all that weird stuff, but whatever they had, mutton, whatever it was, they would just feast on it. And in the midst of it, they would take some time, they would take some time and they would remember what Jesus instituted. They would remember what he said. His body was given for us. His blood was shed for our sins. And they would partake in the Lord's Supper together. I think that would help us. I think it would help you to not feel so remorse, like you had to like work something up. If it was, if we gave you the gave you the bread and gave you the cup and a lobster tail, <laughs> like there you go. Like that might feel a little bit different. We obviously don't have that practice anymore, so we need to be careful that when we come about this, we don't get in a trap of religiosity. I know Jesus had to die because I couldn't do it, but. But right now, he won't receive me unless I really feel a certain way. I think that's a danger on the opposite side. Here's the way that we practice this at Four Oaks. And this is probably the biggest question for you. Why do we do this every week? How many of you were in a church when you grew up where you took communion every single week? A couple. Yeah, not many. I wasn't. I was in a church that was about once a month, or something like that. Um, which meant if you missed that Sunday of the month, it was like... A long time. We do it every single week. Why? I want to answer that question. I think it's legitimate for us to answer that question here and now. The first reason is because I'm convinced from church history, especially early church history, even evidence from, the, from Scripture itself, that the early church was in a practice of taking communion and remembering what Jesus had said often. If not every single week, almost every single time they gathered, this was part of their worship experience. It's why, even in the book of Acts, when he describes what it means to be, remember that section that's borderline socialist? It's kind of like, remember that part? Even in that part, the description, the wording under the breaking of bread has overtones and hints of this idea of communion, not just, hey, let's get together and share a Big Mac. It was like for, it was actually a, I think a significant instance in their week. So I think the historical record gives us the most evidence that this was a very common practice. A second reason, I think that when Jesus said, as often as you do this, it's stretching it to think, in some churches they do this once a quarter, four times a year. I don't think that's what the word often means. I just, I just don't. I think he really meant it as often as you do this. I think that when it's presented as as often as you do this, the barrier should be on why would we mitigate and do it less, which there might be good reasons not to. You are a religious kind of people. It's possible we would go through the motions. Of course, we could do that with any aspect of service. But we do a lot of things every week because it's good for us. And we bear with the temptation to make it a religious exercise because we believe it's a good thing for us. We sing songs every week. And you know what? I think some of you are just going through the motions. I really do. I think some of you are just going through the motions. You just like the music. You're just not. Re- you're singing the song because you know the words. It's just. I think next, no music. We're just cutting that out. 
should just not be a part of a church. That's the way that people think about communion, oftentimes. The only reason that I got when I was growing up from my church, why do we only do this once a month? Everybody really loves it. It seems like it's great. It seems like Jesus said to do it. Well, because sometimes if we do it too much, people get in a routine and they don't mean it. Like, have you seen these people mumble through songs? We need to cut out the song, right? We do a sermon every single week, right? <laughs> Nothing about this gets routine, right? Not, not even a part of it. You guys are like, that's why we don't take a vote on what we do, right? <laughs> we would maybe, we would maybe say like, oh, it's kind of routine, but it's not a sufficient argument to say, well, then we should just be very careful about never doing communion. At least that's the way that I would feel about it and the way the church leadership feels about it. Let me give you another reason. I love communion for the fact that it allows us to focus on Jesus every single week, no matter what. There are times when the songs, the liturgy, the readings, the sermon, we want to teach through the Bible, and sometimes that Bible passage, like, we're going to teach in 2 Corinthians, right? And we're going to teach through and have to deal with the fact of, like, I hear that some of you are, have his father's wife. <laughs> it's like insane, grotesque sexual sin. It's hard to weave the gospel story into these kinds of things, right? It really is. And what ends up happening is, if you don't have another place to tell people this is who Jesus is and what he's done, you get sermons where they're describing gross sexual sin and then tacking on a strange sort of, that reminds me of the cross of Jesus Christ, right? And it doesn't, it's like forced. Has anyone ever been in these kind of moments before? I don't want that to happen, I don't want to get at a point where anyone would ever come to a church service and say, like, I'm kind of unclear about what Jesus did for me. I want to say every single week, definitively, over and over and over again, disagree with us, that's fine, but you need Jesus and what he's done. And so every week, no matter what, if I miss it, if the songs don't hit, if you don't hear anything else, at a certain point, someone will say to you, this body presents Jesus, who was a perfect sacrifice for your sins. This blood was shed because without the shedding of blood, you cannot be forgiven. And if you would just receive Jesus, you can be alive in him. The fact that we say that every single week makes me delighted. I love that. It's one of the reasons that we do it every single week. The final reason I think that we take communion every single week is because I think God meets us. I think he meets us in communion. Not because there's anything magical about the, the juice or the, what are those things called? I don't know what they are. Soup crackers, whatever they are. Not that there's anything magical in there. But I think whenever and wherever you are moved to actually confess your need for Jesus Christ, that God is just waiting and he meets you. He brings an assurance to your soul. He sends his spirit. This is why the language of the confessional statement says it's a means of grace to you. That again and again, God reminds you that when you humble yourself and you walk down and you say, yes, I need the merit of another, I think it's actually good for our souls, spiritually, that God, he meets us. I think these are all good reasons for us to partake in these together. I want to tell you that at the, at the end of the day, I want us to be unified I want us as a church to to not argue, to not think to ourselves like we need to have this perfectly right. I just want us to be obedient. I know that that means at the end of the day that some of us don't get our preference. Some of you think we're not Baptist enough. Some of the rest of you tolerate that aspect of who we are. At the end of the day, I think that 
what Jesus has done is supposed to be pictured and central. We are going to practice a particular thing. We will only ever preach and teach and practice believer's baptism by immersion. We do communion every single week. But we want you to see Jesus in the midst of it all. That's what we want. We want these pictures to invite you to him. That's the goal. Can I pray for you? God, I pray that in the midst of all the questions that we might have, all the confusion, I pray you'd give us clarity.